We're halfway through. Four weeks to go, four weeks down. And it's a good time to return to the beginning, as they say, for the first time. Back to the infirmary, back to the foundational approach to mindfulness of breathing. Uh, that can be helpful. One can really see it at all phases, in all phases of the practice, really. Whether you've already achieved shamatha, it can be helpful. Recall the teachings from Dujul Lingba and from His Holiness about just resting your body like, like a corpse on a charnel ground and your speech like a lute on which the strings have been cut and resting your space, just dissolving, in, resting your mind, dissolving it into space without modification as the fast track to having all the energies coming into the central channel and re realizing pristine awareness. Remember? So that's a very advanced practice. In the Vajra essence, it's way, way deep into the text when you're, you know, after many, many other stages. So it's not just kindergarten. It's not just remedial. At the same time, in the course of our practice here, the remaining four weeks, it's very easy, especially when you see time is running out, to start pushing, pushing, and then having a bad day and feeling a bit frustrated. and think, I should be trying harder. I should be progressing faster. I should probably try harder. That's what I should do. Never mind what Alan said. I should be trying harder. I need to make faster progress. And whenever I see that, I see that there goes the fist. Yep, there it goes. <clears throat> you know, just sheer ambition, ego, grasping, hope and fear, craving and aversion, aversion to how the practice is going, craving that it would go better, fearing that it won't, hoping that it will, and then driving yourself bonkers, right? And so there's a remedy for this, and it's called the infirmary. And it's just that. You know what it is. And we're gonna, I, I will give the guided meditation again, not with as many words as before, but this is the ticket. As soon as you see that tendency coming up, as soon as you see t pressure starting to build up, especially in the head, please, just like a, like a groundskeeper at a golf course seeing a weed cropping up in a green, as soon as it, it just pokes up a tiny bit, you just take, pluck it right out, right? Don't let tension in the head, headaches, tension in the shoulders and the jaws and so forth. Please, 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 don't let it become a habit. If it becomes a habit, it becomes very hard to kick, very difficult to overcome. So as soon as you see that clenching coming in, release. Remember that, of course, what we want is stillness, stability for shamatha. That's really the, the very taste of it, the essence of it. And we want to grab it. You know, that's what people, in the, in the, people with no meditation background at all do. They want to concentrate for all kinds of things, crossword puzzles, watching television, balancing their checkbooks, and so forth and so on. And it's always that way. The normal way is always, I want to concentrate, I want to really focus, and then clenching down. Scientifically stu studied and verified, it leads to fatigue, to tension, to stress, to exhaustion. Grumpiness and irritability, etc., etc. And so, being patient, being gentle, being loving, in your practice. And finding, indeed, that stillness, that stability, that continuity of attention, the inner calm, but through relaxation rather than just sheer grit, sheer determination, sheer effort. Okay? So over the next four weeks, it's certainly possible for us here in Phuket, for people listening by podcast, leading, uh, in, in most cases, a much more active, socially engaged way of life. Again, you can have really, and all of us here, when we leave here, 
You can have one of those days that kind of just ties you up in knots, you know? Emotionally stressful, tight, wound up, wired, exhausted. And so rather than just, you know, responding by diffusing the awareness with entertainment, with more work, and so forth and so on, the infirmary, coming back to the supine position, full body awareness, mindfulness of breathing, and let the body-mind heal itself. So we have two modes here, and then we go right to the practice. But I've mentioned this to a number of you already one-on-one. When you start getting tight, headaches and so forth and so on coming up, one is the infirmary, which I'm about to teach again. But the other one is mindful walking, you know, preferably in a nice quiet place, a place of nature, a place of natural beauty. And while you're walking, you can just walk at a normal pace. You don't have to go especially slowly. But walking, and then as you're walking, really come to your senses. Let your awareness come into the body. Feel the contact of your, of your feet on the ground step by step as you're grounding your awareness. Very soothing, very easy, very relaxed. But also let your awareness come to the visual field and let your awareness come out into space. Expansive, loose, open. And likewise, let it come into the auditory field, hearing sounds, including distant sounds. So really come out, out into the present moment, especially in terms of your tactile experience, visual and auditory, and then moment by moment, just be be there, utterly fresh, utterly fresh. Whatever rumination comes up, just release it, keep on coming back to the present. And that's a way also for releasing kind of pent-up energy, tension, tightness, and all of that, uh, by releasing it out into space. Okay? But right now, let's please find a comfortable position. If you have a chance for supine, now's the good time. You can do this. I'll emphasize this as some of you are settling. Of course you can do this in the sitting position. I'm sitting. You can do it while you're standing, like when you're waiting in line for food here in the cafeteria or in the dining hall. You can do it walking also. Okay? Just mindfully grounding your awareness in the body right down to the earth element, mindfully breathing in, mindfully breathing out as you walk. So please, following the teachings of the Buddha, Engage in the practice in all four postures of sitting, walking, lying down, and standing. And then let your mind become dharma. By now, hopefully, you have a Pavlovian response to the bell. Not to salivate, but to relax. As you bring your awareness to the body, you may immediately feel a loosening of the muscles in the shoulders, a softening of the muscles throughout the face. Settling of your body in a posture of ease and comfort and relaxation. And softening especially the eyes.
apart from the natural movement of the breath. Let your body be as still as a mountain as you allow your awareness, free of grasping, to be as still as space, illuminating the space of the body, but not entering into it. Release even the concept of the body. Release any mental imagery of the body. And rest in naked, unadorned awareness. As free as possible from conceptual elaboration. As you breathe out, do so with total abandon, total surrender, releasing the rest to the very last drop. With your mind very quiet, non-conceptual, totally present. And then simply allow the breath to flow in without helping it along, without applying effort. Let the body breathe as if you were deep asleep. with a deliberate act of will. Free your mind, liberate your mind for the short duration of this session from all concerns about the past and the future. And allow yourself the leisure so that your awareness rest in stillness in the present moment 
having the opportunity then to rest in the sheer luminosity of awareness, illuminating the space of the body and the, and the tactile sensations of the respiration wherever they manifest throughout this field. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
So there's an aphorism I've heard. I don't know whether it's from engineering or something like that, but it's the aphorism makes a lot of sense, and that is if you have a large problem that looks maybe even insurmountable or impossible, break it down into a lot of small problems. Small enough that they really are solvable, tractable, right? And so here's a problem. Um, I'd like you to settle your mind so that you are completely free of even subtle excitation and subtle laxity, and you can sustain the flow of flawless samadhi effortlessly for four hours. So why don't you just do that? Sounds like a big problem, doesn't it? Like, are you kidding me? You know, that's, who, who can do that? That seems impossible. Well, let's break it down into nine little problems. And here's the first problem. It's called directed attention. So let's see if we can handle this one. If we can't handle this one, we probably should go home. And by the way, the last four weeks, that wasn't really a retreat. That was just preliminary for a retreat. The retreat actually begins today. Okay. I was just kidding for the last four weeks. You know. But now we're getting serious. Okay, so if you can handle it, you've got a one-month retreat. Some of you, that's the longest retreat you've ever done. But, you know, try it. Okay. So here's our first problem called directed attention. And this means you actually have to direct your attention. You might want to try it. Okay. Now, what is achieved when you achieve this first out of nine stages leading up to the actual achievement of shamatha, which I just described a moment ago? Um, what is achieved when you are able actually to direct your attention? You've accomplished this first state of directed attention, what is achieved is you're able to direct your attention to the chosen object. In other words, you can find it. It's like having a dart in your hand and actually being able to hit the dartboard, okay, from two feet away. Okay? And so, I didn't mention it, but you already knew the object of mindfulness, the object of attention in this practice for this morning was simply the sensations correlated with the respiration as they manifest throughout the body, right? So, so we don't, I don't give you a lot of unnecessary exercise. Was anybody not able to find those sensations? You don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, for the people in podcasts, let the, let the record note, all hands are down. <laughs> he was just combing his hair. Okay, so you've already, well, congratulations. Then you are now certified. You're now certified. Out of nine stages, you've achieved the first one. Good, that four, first four weeks wasn't a waste of time, was it? Okay, so out of nine stages, you've achieved the first one. And now tomorrow is going to be stage two, so I have my expectations up, you know. Tomorrow is stage two, and then stage three for day after tomorrow. And, but we have the momentum up. Right? Everybody's just smiling at me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, what's he talking about? <laughs> you know, but, but Padmasambhava said, try this for one day. So that's what I'm saying. One day... Stage one, nail it. You know, just get that sucker. Okay, so that is what you've achieved. Now, the power by which you achieve this is called, it's actually literally called the power of hearing. And that is you heard the instruction. That's, that's what it is. You heard the instruction. And by hearing it and deciding, yes, you'd like to follow the instructions, then you carry through and on the basis of hearing the teachings and understanding them, then you are able to accomplish the first stage. So it's really quite, very straightforward. Now, what problems persist? This is very helpful and very inspiring. What problems persist when you're still at stage one, which you may be for the rest of the day? You know? 
um, what problems persist is you. And this is from this this nine this these nine stages. These go back for centuries and centuries and centuries. I don't know how many, but more than twelve centuries for sure. And so what what I'm saying that is not oh not that it's true because it's old, but there's an enormous amount of experience behind this that's been replicated for generation after generation of yogis. This is where yogis start. You know, it's so it's it's so inspiring to hear of. Shapkar, for example, Shapkar Rinpoche, for which Machu Ricard uh, did, did a beautiful translation of his life story, by autobiography. And Shapkar Rinpoche, is, he, did refer, he did refer to shamatha within this a large biography. He referred to shamatha, getting to a point in his practice where he really decided to achieve shamatha. And he, he went off to the mountains and he said, I practiced shamatha and I achieved bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. And then that was it. You know, so there are some people. Maybe he just practiced for one day and achieved shamatha. There are people like that, you know. Uh, but for the rest of us, uh, it's very easy to get our expectations up too high when we're at the beginning and thinking, "Oh, I must be." How many times have I heard this over the last three years, or six years, or thirty-six years? I'm probably the worst meditator here. I won't ask for for you to raise your hands, but um, think to yourself: Has that thought occurred to you that you, in fact, are the worst meditator in the room? and the podcast people, the worst meditator on the planet, okay, whatever. Uh, it's very easy to think when one sets one's expectations unrealistically and starts saying, but I know the meditation, I, ha- I know how to do it, and I should be doing better. What's the problem that persists? Is essentially you have no attentional continuity at all. In other words, now that you're looking close up at your mind while you're trying to attend to the breath, it looks like you're dealing with a psychotic individual. Whose you know whose mind is so scrambled that you can't maintain continuity at all. You touch, you just kind of touch base like a little butterfly. You just touch, you just touch down briefly for a second or two, maybe three, all all, all in a row, on your meditative object, and then you're all fluttering someplace else. And then you land, you just you like just landing lightly on the breath, and then you flutter away into rumination and land. It's kind of like a pogo stick approach to shamatha. Pogo stick, boing, boing, boing. You know, touching down occasionally, right? But mostly you're just meditating on rumination, dullness, boredom, and when is that chime going to ring meditation? Right? That's normal for the beginning, okay? No continuity, that's your problem. And so, that's the problem. Attentional imbalances. Now, this is interesting. And now I'm going to be slowly, day by day, responding to Susie's question about the nature of core subtle and uh, medium excitation and laxity. So the attentional imbalance that is highlighted in this phase is coarse excitation. It's not to say that you you won't be subject or you can't be subject to dullness on the very first day or in the early phases of the practice. Um, But the highlight here, that which is really emphasized, is coarse excitation. And coarse excitation means, and I've mentioned this before, that while you have intended at the beginning of the session to focus single-pointedly and continuously upon the sensations of the breath throughout the body, in a matter of just a few seconds, you're not. And your attention has completely gone elsewhere, and you've forgotten about the breath entirely. So you look, by the way, I've been glancing at you once in a while in, while, you're, while we're in session. You look really good. You know? I mean, those who in supine were doing a really good job of emulating corpses, and everybody else sitting very still, really pucka, really pucka, very good. 
Outside, still as a mountain. Inside, tornado. <laughs> at least you look good, you know. So if we need a photo op, we'll have a really good photo op. Look at Alan Wallace's students. Man, they look good. Now do an x-ray of their minds. Ooh. So of course, excitation, you know exactly what it is. You've entirely forgotten. You've disengaged. The body looks like it's meditating. The mind is on vacation. Okay? So that's the problem. The type of mental engagement called for, needed, in this initial phase of the meditation is simply called focused. You need to focus. You don't just kind of sit, sit out there and be as relaxed as you possibly can and let your mind go dipsy-doodle all over the place. There is some degree of effort. You know, some degree of effort. That is, we're sitting here for 20, 24 minutes, and, there, and we're practicing shamatha. We're setting out on this long trek to reach shamatha land. Um, and so focus the attention. Okay? It applies some deliberate will, exertion of will. Now, the quality of experience is movement. And that is, as you seek to let your awareness be still, it often isn't. It's carried away by grasping, rumination, other sensory fields, and so forth. Lots of thoughts coming up. Uh, and so there's just commotion, turbulence, movement. That's what it feels like. That's the normal feeling. That's what it should feel like. And this is it. So we don't have false expectations. If you experience this, well, my mind seems so chaotic, turbulent, agitated, so much motion, activity. It's obsessive. It's compulsive. How did I get in here? You know, who gave me this mind? I want to trade in. You know. Well, that's normal. And then the, a nice, and the last one, we're almost finished. The last one is the a metaphor. We're going to have a metaphor for each of the nine stages. And the metaphor here, what's it like? Now, in terms of imagery, the metaphor is that of a cascading waterfall. So in terms of the, just the sheer volume, uh, the, the volume, the impact of rumination, it's like a cascading waterfall. That is, it's gushing, it's overflowing, it seems overwhelming, it's chaotic. Uh, very disturbing, and so forth. And then to know, wow, that's what it's like to be not pre-shamatha or failing at shamatha. That's what it's like to succeed. That's what it feels like to succeed in the cultivation, the practice of shamatha on stage one. So that should be kind of comforting. If we don't hear that, it is so easy to set ourselves false expectations and then not living up to our expectations, and then feeling frustrated, and then going into the knee-jerk reaction, I should be trying harder. I should be trying harder. Okay? So I'll just say once again, yes, we want stillness, but let it first of all come out of that sense of releasing, because we're, it's almost like we're already in kind of in a spasmodic seizure when we start meditating, just normally, especially in the modern world, more so than Tibetan nomads 100 years ago. But in the pace of life, the bombardment of the stimuli, the, the multitasking, I don't need to describe modern life to you, it's like we're already in seizure. And I've known a number of Tibetans from traditional Tibet, who, especially those who, um, who know Tibetan medicine. I remember oh, a good friend of mine. At, he's a now a research psychologist at UCLA named Los Arapke. We've known each other for more than 40 years now. Um, but he was, he's trained in various ways. He's a professional psychologist, PhD, of course. He was, he was also trained. Uh, extensively in traditional Tibetan medicine. And he was trained by, prior to that. He and I were monks together in the monastery uh, more than 40 years ago. So we, we go way, way back. Uh, but he's also one of the most bicultural people I know. He's truly a Tibetan. I mean, 
totally committed to his culture. But he's, living in, he's been living in the United States for decades by now, fluent English, but really knows Western society, modern society. And he made a comment from this very multifaceted, very savvy, bicultural perspective. He said, you know, everybody living here in the West, you all have prana disorders. I mean, all of you have prana disorders, lung disorders in Tibetan. You all do. But re considering how ill you all are, you're coping remarkably well. And he's not the only one to say that, because uh, I've had a good deal of contact with Tibetan medicine and then other, other traditions as well. And of course, it's all relative. But they do have this bicultural perspective. To some extent, I think I do too. Is when you're, when you're in the midst, when you're, a, um, when you're a crab in a pot of water that's getting hotter and hotter, because this is a very cruel way to cook crabs. My understanding is they boil them alive. That's my understanding. That's what I've heard. If you're a crab in a, in a pot of water, and there are other crabs in there as well, and it's getting hotter and hotter, it can just seem, apparently, it's just the temperature goes up. And I've never seen this happen, but apparently they don't freak out at some point. It just gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and then they're dead. Um, it will seem normal to you. It'll seem normal to you, you know, that it's getting hotter. Well, yeah, water's hot. Oh, yeah, water's really hot. Oh, I'm dead. You know? Or give another one from my personal experience, because I haven't been a crab for a long time, at least not physically. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up my teenage years. Well, part of my teenagers, most of my teenagers, uh, in the Los Angeles basin, Los Angeles area. This was back in the 1960s. And when I was in high school, I played tennis. So I played uh, junior varsity, then varsity tennis. And so there we were in this Los Angeles basin. This was at the height of Los Angeles smog. Um, and we, who played tennis, I played singles tennis primarily, which is a lot of exertion, you know, good, good, good sport. Um, we learned how, living in the Los Angeles area, uh, to breathe shallowly when you're playing singles tennis. Because we knew that if we breathed deeply, we'd cough. So keep it really shallow, and then you don't cough. But if you go, then you'll cough out. Because the air quality was so terrible. You can't see the mountains, you can hardly see, the, you can hardly see anything, because the air quality is filthy, just disgusting. But if you're just living there your whole life, you think that's normal. You think it's normal. Yeah, but doesn't everybody live in air like this? I mean, after all, people have to drive. What can you do, you know? And so it's by context. Anybody who's not raised in that, you'd say, but this is a sewer. Why does anybody live here? This is disgusting. It's like smoking a pack of cigarettes every day when you don't smoke anything. But it's by context. So, so finally, they cleaned it up somewhat. But L.A. still, the air quality is still filthy, but I think not as bad as it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So, and like for the crab in the boiling water, likewise for us, we get used to it, you know. It's dysfunctional. It's really dysfunctional to have a mind that you can't even focus. I mean, if you just listen to the words, you can't even focus for three seconds continuously or longer than that because the mind is bouncing off again. And we're calling this a healthy mind? We're calling that sane? When it comes out the mouth, then it's really obvious. And I will tell a story. I, I met just because of strange karma, but I was living with the Dalai Lama's doctor at the time, but back about 40 years ago, a bit more than that, uh, I encountered, had rather close encounter with three psychotic women because they were all taken to his clinic in hopes that he could give them treatment. He really couldn't. 
Um, and I certainly had no capacity whatsoever. But I was the interpreter for him. And so I got to know them. And I remember sitting up all night, all night with one of these women who was schizophrenic. She was schizophrenic, massively, uh, terribly, tragically, and utterly dysfunctionally schizophrenic. And I sat up with her all night because um, somebody needed to look after her to make sure she wouldn't commit suicide. And so I appointed myself. And so I sat up, and she talked all night. It was chaotic. It was rambling. It was unhappy. But it was just a babbling and babbling and babbling and babbling on. It was very, very sad. Uh, she couldn't stop talking, though. I remember that one in particular because it was an all-nighter. And then I thought, aha, when I meditate, my mind is her mouth. It babbles on and babbles on and babbles on. It has nothing to say. It's not particularly happy. It's obsessive. It's compulsive. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, little spurts here and there, yeah, random, but just babbling, babbling. So she was clearly diagnosed. She was mentally ill. And yet, you know, when, we, when our minds do that, we just keep it discreet. We don't have it come out the mouth. We think, I'm healthy. Look how well I can sit. Wow, really meditating. In the meantime, babbling on like a person who's really out of his mind. So I think we become complacent. I think humanity has become complacent. It's not just us in this room or just Western people, because it's everywhere now. Ulaanbaatar, Singapore, Sydney, Buenos Aires. I've been to a lot of places by now, and it's the same. But we become complacent. We've settled for so little, and then call it normal. We call it healthy. And then we consider it to be normal, to be mildly unhappy, and we cure that with work and entertainment and alcohol and drugs and so forth, and just killing time in a myriad of ways, anything to avoid, as, as Pascal said, sitting quietly in our chambers and seeing what a total toxic waste dump we have for a mind. And saying, yeah, but that's normal. And it is, just like it's normal for the crabs in the pot of boiling water to feel, yeah, it's kind of hot. Or the tennis players in Los Angeles area feeling, yeah, it's kind of smoggy, kind of smoggy day. Let's all breathe shallowly, shall we? Because it's normal. Because that's what everybody does. If you don't want to cough, you breathe shallowly. Right? So the Buddha's teachings in the first noble truth are a wake-up call. What you're taking to be normal is not healthy. This level of dissatisfaction, of unrest, of agitation, oscillating dysfunctionally between excitation and laxity and dullness. It's normal in the sense of being habitual. It's not normal in the sense of being healthy. So, just as Shantideva expresses like total getting fed up with his mental afflictions, and especially to self-centeredness, remember? How can I be happy? How can I enjoy the, the bounties of samsara when I have these enemies residing fearlessly in my heart? Remember? He's saying, yeah, this is normal. I know that it's normal, but it sucks. And I've really had it. So mental affliction, self-cherishing, self-grasping, self-centeredness, be on your lookout because I'm coming for you. You've tormented me enough. And who's getting any benefit by saying, yeah, but this is normal, this is healthy, you're still functional, you're still a productive member of society, which is the pathetic criterion of sanity espoused by so many people. Well, if you can be productive, as if you're a machine part, if you work, then you're healthy enough to work. So shut up. And that's what we have all these drugs for. We, you know, take your pick. Do you want an anxiety drug, depression drug? Do you want a drug to fall asleep? Do you want a drug to have, have to have sex? 
Tell this kind of drug you want to have a drug to wake up. Tell us the kind of drug you want. I know you've got a totally screwed up dysfunctional mind, but we'll manage your symptoms with drugs. And then just work yourself to death so you don't notice. And when you come home from work and you're exhausted, well, we'll turn on the television, and man, we're going to give you some real quality entertainment. You know, sounds rather cynical, but I think I'm just being realistic. We've really settled for so little in the modern world in terms of sanity. We've set the bar so low you know, that we consider discontent, agitation, restlessness to be normal and healthy. Well, it's not. It's not. And that's what meditation is for. It's a wake-up call, really literally a wake-up call, to say, hey, if it has to be this, if we are biologically hardwired that we have to be screwed up indefinitely, terminally, then, okay, bring on the drugs. Bring on the drugs, you know. And that's the general assumption. Don't get your hopes up. Don't get your expectations. You're only human after all. What did you expect? You're an animal. You're an animal. You're a machine. You're a machine. You're a computer. You're a brain, a screwed up brain. We've settled for so little. And so even though the Buddha's teaching starts with the, with the reality of suffering, highlighting that it's the most optimistic teaching I've ever heard anywhere, bar none, anywhere. Because he's highlighting the reality of suffering because he knows where he's going from there. He's going to, there's a source, and the source is not beyond your control. It's not society, it's not economics, it's not biology, it's not physics, it's not you know, political parties, and so forth and so on. In fact, the true source of suffering is within your reach. It's something that you can touch, that you can change, that you can actually liberate yourself from. You can actually be fully liberated. So now, how's that for a remarkable hypothesis? Hardly anybody on the planet is saying that. And hardly even Buddhists are saying that when they ignore the notion of path and they just throw a whole bunch of Dharma practices at you. Well, that's very nice for alleviating suffering, but how about getting to that third noble truth and eradicating suffering from its root? For that, you've got to go to the fourth noble truth. And this, I find just pathetically, is so often missing, even in modern Buddhist teaching. I've been harping on this for a long time, but doggone it, it's the fourth noble truth. It's path, path, path. It's not just practice dharma, practice dharma, get a bunch of initiations, practice mindfulness, practice sazen, practice this, do this, that, and then die. It's all about path. Whether it's Zen, Chan, Theravada Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, it's all about path. Whether it's using that term or not, it's about liberation, it's about awakening. Even though the term path doesn't come up so, much, so commonly in Zen, it's about instantaneous. But nevertheless, it's about awakening and not just muddling along and doing repeat performances of the same low grade of meditation you've been doing for days or months or years. So it's actually the most inspiring that there is a path. And the path starts by recognizing suffering and it culminates by being totally free of suffering and its course and its causes, which then enables us to marvelously be effective in alleviating the suffering of others. So there it is. Welcome to the infirmary. It's a good place to start. I'll see you later.